All right, all right, all right. Welcome back. Fit Nation. If you're a veteran and you're struggling or feel like you are leading a path towards the darkness, stop and think about those who are around you. Think about how they truly value you, how they will miss you. You are not alone. You need to talk to someone. Someone will listen to you. If you feel like you'll be a burden to someone or feel embarrassed to talk to your friends and family, don't hesitate to call the hotline at 988 and press option one. Don't make a permanent solution to a temporary problem. If you're a new listener, thanks for joining us. Please subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast apps. Don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel at the underscore Misfit Nation. Subscribe and click the bell. This will keep you up to date with our latest news, episodes, and of course the stories of our guests. Speaking of which, our next guest's articulate and insightful perspective shines new light on the concept of leadership. Her deeply personal journey, told with unflinching clarity, inspiring courage, and engaging humor, makes her story a must-see. Audiences are astounded to learn firsthand how a true leader navigates monumental life changes while never sacrificing her mission, her crews, or herself. So without further ado, let's welcome Scotty Jeanette Madden to the Misfit Nation. Welcome, Scotty. How are you? I'm fine, Rich. Thank you. How are you? Good. I hope that didn't shock and all you too much. The music and stuff so kept you. Oh in no, there. that's dude, you're, you're, you were playing half of my playlist. <laughs> awesome, awesome. Finally got someone. <laughs> <laughs> so I know when you connected with me, that I think the first thing you wrote on there was about the the dude you screwed show, and, uh, and that that lured me in there. So it made me think of uh, naked and afraid plus military equals chaos. And I think that was a pretty awesome concept. I never got to see the show unless it's still in production or out there floating somewhere. But oh, it's, yeah, it's still available on the Discovery website. In fact, we were the lead into Naked and Afraid. So. Oh, <laughs> there it is. <laughs> I'll have to look it up on my app there. Oh, yeah, you'll dig it, it. You'll dig it. So if you don't mind, tell us a little bit more about your background, a little more than I just blurbed out there from as far back as you want to go to how we got to where we are now. Wow. Okay. Um, uh, well, um, I am um, just turned 60. Um, I've been a television professional since uh, before I graduated from college at San Diego State. Um, and I really quickly, my career kind of bent towards adventure filmmaking, um, which quite quickly brought me into the realm of uh, military veterans um, and, and, uh, and active duty. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I was so interested in, in being on your show is, um, you know, I, one of the things that I made as a part of my mission being in television is, um, is bringing everybody home alive. That was my concept. And, you know, I will be, very candid that it was my experience on Dude, You're Screwed when I was working with, at the time, active duty uh, Captain Terry Shepard uh, of the U.S. Army Green Berets, uh, who's, who really quickly, like, luckily I hadn't made this mistake before I met him, but he said, hey, you know, we hate when television people lock and load or get ready to go to war. And, you know, we, there's a lot of hyperbole that we tend to think that we're solving, you know, brain cancer in television when in truth we're just trying to have fun and tell stories but 
uh, his point was well taken, you know, that, that I think a lot of that, um, I think a lot of the experiences that veterans go through gets diminished when television people try to appropriate the language. So it was very quickly, but none of us did that smart. <laughs> but, you know, one thing that I, I got um, very passionate about really quickly, we did a show in Alaska, um, was probably one of my first really big shows uh, called Out of the Wild, The Alaska Experiment. And we had uh, two incredible men who are, were in charge of our logistics. Now we had a crew of 130 people in the field. Wow. The network kept asking us, how come we don't see any bears? I'm like, because bears are smart and there's 130 of us out here and they have lead-based bear spray up there. <laughs> what they call it. But one of the men that I became really good friends with was a uh, retired uh, Captain um, Jim Hastings. And he was the, one of the instrumental founders of Alaska Healing Hearts, which was sort of the same kind of uh, mission as Wounded Warriors. And, you know, I, I became really good friends with him and I really started to, got, got to see how he was working. And when I was in a position to actually be in charge on that show, I was the supervising producer, which is the number two person. Um, so when I became the showrunner, which is the number one person, I was able to go back to Jim and say, hey, how can, how can we help? How do we do this? And so we were able to bring on the, through Alaska Healing Hearts, several veterans who weren't able to get work anywhere else. And, but they were able to work on a TV crew. And I'm like, okay, who do I want? I'm out in the wilderness. I want, I want guys who know and girls who know what they're doing in the wilderness. And these people knew it. So uh, we were able to get a lot of them involved in the actual production. And I made that a practice. You know, that was kind of, we worked out some of the bugs on that trip and, and then we moved it on. But that's, that was the reason why I wanted to be on your show. And you asked me my history. I, you know, very quickly, I started off as a camera operator and an editor, and I worked my way through the ranks until I became what's called the showrunner, which is, you know, kind of the, the you're, you're in charge out there in the field. You're the both the creative, uh, um, you know, top of the rank, and you're also the fiscally and legally responsible one at the top of the rank. So you're the one responsible for delivering the show to the network that everybody else thinks they bought. So, um, you know, I just, I, because my resume started getting bigger and bigger over on the, took, took people into dangerous parts of the world and brought them home alive and brought home a story column, uh, my crew, my career grew there. And that's what brought me to do, do your screwed. So, you know, it's that's a long, an awesome journey a long, way. long, 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 I, I diminished a lot of it, but you know what I mean? Yeah. It's still, I mean, still, even the, the small bit you think you said just now is a lot because a lot of people don't understand what, to what went into you going from being in college at San Diego State to all the way, all way in Alaska filming in a whole production up there with a 130-person crew as the, the two and one person. Yeah. So I mean, that's a long journey, even if you just to say it in four minutes. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. so what are some of the challenges that you've seen as far as, uh, for you, your story is a lot more complicated than just the, the, edu the entertainment business. Because you have a real story that dates back to you growing up and then becoming who you are now. So I'd like to hear just a little bit of that challenge you had. Because I know you grew up at a time when it was pretty much foreboding. And uh, it was harder yeah. for you than it is now. It's a lot. I mean, it's not easy now, but it's a lot easier now than it was then. 
Well, at least we have the language now, right? You right. know, when I was first growing up, um, anytime I displayed any kind of feminine behavior, I got hit. And, and that wasn't by my family. That's oddly, that was a person who thought that they were protecting my father. My father was a very charismatic man. Um, if you met him, you'd completely understand. He was, you know, uh, he was just, everybody loved him. Men, women loved him, everybody. He was just, he was a born leader. He walked in the room, he, he took command, right, of the room. Um, I'm sorry, my dog is barking. Let me, I'm going to let her in. She, she wants to be a part of the show. I'll be right back. All right. Come on, you. We're doing a show here. <laughs> um, so, uh, oddly, this young man, and he was a teenager at the time, uh, idolized my father. And so, um, many times uh, when, you know, my parents needed to go out, they left him in charge of me. And whenever I did anything that, you know, felt natural to me was uh, too feminine to him. And I know this from his words coming at me, don't be a sissy. I got hit. Um, and I got threatened with, what would your father say? You know, um, and I thought my father loved me and I thought he would, <laughs> I didn't know I was doing anything wrong, except that it elicited this behavior from him. So, you know, it doesn't take a genius to figure out, don't do that stuff. Um, I was, firstborn of four and you know everybody thought I was my dad chip off my dad's old block um and I knew how to make him happy you know like I I loved sports so when I excelled in sports he was excited and but I also excelled in art and he was happy about that too and I excelled as a student he was happy about that so he was just happy about me being happy I think but he was a man's man and, and you know there were times where he if I you know uh, do you want me to give you something to cry about? I was already crying. I'm like, I, I got one. Thanks. <laughs> um, so I, I, bottom line is like many trans women, I learned to suppress it. Um, and I tried to thrive despite this. Well, it doesn't go away just because we get good at being able to not show it to the outside world. It makes it worse on the inside. It, it's, it creates, um, you know, uh, I have a TED talk where I say it far better because I practiced it. <laughs> but, 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 you know, it was like uh, having uh, icicles that were lit on fire, hammered into your skin at every moment of the day. Um, I had to constantly keep this hurricane of, of trauma and fire away so that I could just get through my day. And it, it, it was never not a thought. And the thought was, I'm wrong, this isn't right, but I can never be right, and I can't do anything about it. And it's just this unending cycle of this, and you have to use your mind to kind of get on top of it and suppress it. And, and I could keep it in a box for about, well, this will surprise you, for about 28 days. <laughs> and then it would come out again, and gee, I wonder where that cycle came from. And then I would take me about four or five days to of just basically walking around. The way I describe it is like if you were holding onto the inside of if if you had to hold the heat shields on the space shuttle as it was re-entering. Wow. <laughs> because that's the only thing that was going to keep you from burning up. That's what it was like for four days. And then it would be four days after that of just shame. Like there it was again. It came back. You didn't do anything about it you know, you, you're a terrible person, you need to die, you know, and then it would be like trying to climb through that, you know, miasma, 
and all the while acting like everything is okay. So that went on. Um, and I thought, you know, if I, if I sewed them together, like if I, if I said, well, this happened last month, it's happening now, it's probably going to happen next month. If I did that and then didn't do anything about it, then that was on me. So I never sewed those together. I just went, well, I hope that never happens again. And then tried to go off into my, I mean, I have a, I had a huge quiver of denial arrows and they all had little angles on them that you could use, you know, I had more arrows in my quiver than golfers have, you know, drivers in a bag. So um, I could figure out how to get past it the next time, but it never worked. Um, I was married. I got married uh, at about the age of 26. Um, it was an amazing marriage. Um, we were incredibly in love and I made, these are her words, not mine. I made her the happiest woman on the planet, um, but it still didn't go away. And one day at about year 20, I woke up at the foot of our bed at about 5 a.m. in the morning holding two cups of coffee. Now that's not strange on a Saturday morning for me to make coffee for us so we could cuddle in bed, but it was strange for me to be doing it at 5 a.m., even stranger that I didn't remember how I got there. Wow. And my wife, Marcy, said, wow, that's really sweet, but it's awful early for coffee. And that's when I kind of came back into my body and I just blurted out in a far more confusing and less articulate fashion that I just told you, I'm a woman. And as soon as it fell out of my mouth and bounced off of her face and was coming back at me, I was like trying to take it back. Like I, you know, I was never, I was never going to tell anybody that I was going through this. I didn't know how to tell anybody about this. I didn't know what the language was. I mean, for me growing up, it was Dr. Renee Richards trying to play professional tennis and then being eviscerated every night by late night talk show host to newscasters, everybody talking about this freak and she needed to die and who the hell did she think she was? And I was like, I don't know if that's me. Uh, I don't wanna play tennis. <laughs> <laughs> so um, that, that started a two week process of Marcy basically and I just holding, hugging each other and crying. She thought I was having a nervous breakdown and I was gonna say I wanted a Porsche. And she used to joke, I would have got you the Porsche. <laughs> <laughs> but it took about another five years where it was just the two of us trying to figure out what, what does this mean? What does this do? I didn't know what coming out would be. I didn't know, I didn't know what I wanted. I just knew what I had been fighting my entire life. So we got together and figured it out. And you know, for her, when in her words, she would say, I didn't fall in love with a gender. I fell in love with a person. And if this is what's growing, and, and I knew this once I started to figure out, you know, I need to do something about this now. It's out, it's out of the bag. What does this mean? If I could figure out what I wanted, wanted, then of course she would help me get it because she loved me. Right. But I didn't know I didn't know what I wanted until we started slowly but surely doing it. And that's the one thing I want to tell everybody. It's like a lot of times it feels like a solo journey, but you have to you have to tell the person that you love and then you have to work together and you have to go at each other's pace. 
you know, a lot of trans women are like, okay, I've been holding on to this all my life. Let's do it all in one day, you know? And like, you got to let the people that love you catch up. So she did. And, you know, she did have to do most of the heavy lifting um, because she had to change. Like, you know, her, her ideal marriage, I was her fourth marriage. And I was her ideal marriage. I was, she put me up as the poster child for every marriage out there. And I was always giving advice to, usually to the woman because the dude doesn't need it doesn't isn't going to take advice right <laughs> so i would i would do that but you know it was more because we held on to the handrail of love oddly enough when um unfortunately three months after i came out to marcy she was diagnosed with ovarian cancer oh. and that was part of the reason why it was five years of time between telling her and before i came out to the world because it was like okay let's get you out of cancer and then we'll go back to me. And so we, you know, we went through the motions. She had chemo and surgery and all that kind of stuff. And we had four really good years where we felt like cancer was gone. Um, and so then we got back to then modifying our marriage and making room in our marriage for what was, what the, what was happening. And I wrote a book and then she wrote a book. Um, we started giving talks to colleges and businesses about, you know, how to do this and what does it mean and, you know, that sort of thing. And, um, you know, we fought ovarian cancer for nine years and she passed away in 2018. Oh, wow. Um, so, but she passed with us and still in love. So, you know, whenever I hear people say, you know, well, I just can't wrap my head around it, or we have to agree to disagree. I'm like, yeah, fuck you. You know, Marcy lost her King Arthur, and she had something to lose. People today who are just throwing opinions out left and right, they don't have anything to lose by doing that, and they're they're talking about a human being. And when you can do the work that Marcy does, well, then, then you can come back and talk. But until then, shut up. <laughs> so, so anyways, uh, that brings us to today. I mean, I, you know, I still grieving trying to work without her right isn't easy it's only been what, just uh four years or so since it occurred so it's not easy to get over any loss and especially someone that was your right hand for three decades or three oh, decades yeah. plus and in the journey both of you were going on having that openness to do that it's it's I and mean, i'm not gonna say it's unheard of but it's people don't always talk about it that Correct. people stay together to do it. You know, yeah. I'm sure it happens in households around all around the country, but a lot of places it's still, like you said, um, they didn't come out. They're waiting yeah. for the perfect time, which there's no perfect time to come out. No. And I know what I was growing up, I think a lot of it was ignorance for us because we just didn't know what we didn't know. Right. And even when I first came in the army, I still was pretty ignorant to anything other than what was black and white. It had to be black and white or it wasn't right. It wasn't until I started growing as a human to understand and have empathy and sympathy or not really sympathy empathy towards other people's feelings and thoughts and uh as i grew it embedded in me that i had to be more open to everything because there's everything out there it's not just me well you know it, it comes down to and, and i think the reasons why um i relate to your audience is that if you know on a television set it, it is about there is a hierarchical chain of command you know um, and you don't get into that position unless you earn the respect of everybody who's quote unquote below you, you know? 
Um, and you get that respect because you care for them and you lead them and you, you lead with, you lead with empathy, you, you know? And so, um, you know, I had the, the cast for Dude, You're Screwed was uh, Terry Shabbers, a Green Beret, active duty at the time. Uh, Jake Zwieg was a retired Navy SEAL. Uh, John Hudson was an RAF SEER instructor. And then we had uh, a couple of people that rotated into the other five slots. We always had five going on at the same time. And they were various military and or uh, master uh, guide status. Um, when I came out to them, I didn't know this at the time, but they called the network and they said, just in case you're wondering, we're with her. So they didn't even, they didn't bat an eyelash. That was like the respect that I had as their leader, that I had earned my stripes with him. That mattered. And that's also something that, you know, I want to tell anybody out there that is, you know, worried about coming out is that as long as you were a good person in the closet, you'll be okay when you come out. You know, there's some people that it's, and it's, it's hard because it's very traumatic being in the closet for, on, for whatever reasons, right? Um, and that sometimes equals bad behavior or less than desirable behavior because of that trauma. And that's terrible and unfortunate. And I'm, I feel for people like that. But as long as you are a respectable human being in the closet, you'll be one when you come out. And, and that way you'll have, and people will back you up. It, it's, not, it's scary, but it's only because it's scary of the unknown. Right. You fear what you don't, you don't know what you don't know at that point. And, exactly. uh, and like you said, if you were a good person on Monday, came out Monday night, Tuesday, you're still that same person. <laughs> right. It's just, it's up to that person on Tuesday to realize that you're still the same person I was talking to yesterday and having coffee with them. You're still the same person. Exactly. Yeah. Look at Kristen Beck, you know, Friday night, she went out as Chris Beck. Monday, she returns as Kristen Beck and she's still at the Pentagon, right? right. <laughs> at the time, you know, it's like, yeah, well, one of the highest Navy SEALs we've ever had. Huh? Nothing sure. changed when she wore <laughs> heels. In fact, she was still shooting pretty good. <laughs> she had to get used to the heels probably, but it's different. <laughs> uh, well, if you've ever seen Lady Valor, it's like, why are you wearing heels right now, honey? You're killing us. <laughs> we wear the appropriate shoes. We don't always wear heels. <laughs> That's a different group that wears those, and uh, they practice. Exactly. <laughs> yes. So when you broke into, and I know it's a slow process to break into Hollywood at any angle that you go into it. You went with the adventure way. Was it a slow process to move up, or did you hit every kind of, uh, I guess, job along the way as you went up? Well, uh, yeah, you know what? I had a really bizarre. It's not. I wouldn't. I don't recommend this way. But two <laughs> weeks after I graduated from San Diego State from the television department, I was directing my own show. Oh wow! <laughs> this guy had just sold a show, and he drank in my dad's bar, and he was he was like, you know, it was kind of like the dog who catches the car. He sold a show and didn't know how to produce it, right? My dad says, my kid just graduated from college. You ought to hire Scott. So uh, luckily he did. And so I was directing a show, you know, now it was a really small show and I had to sleep with my camera. I had to shoot a show. I had to shoot an, a segment every day because if I didn't walk into the post on Thursday night with, you know, enough material to create a half an hour television show and edit round the clock so that we could air on Friday, then I was toast. 
and we have to give the money back to the advertisers, right? So that really, I got my chops down on that. Um, but then when I started doing bigger shows that are, you know, that had far like bigger breath, I mean, I freelanced for a long time and I had my own company with a bunch of other freelancers in San Diego where we hired, we became so good at all of the positions that a producer needs, camera, audio, lighting, um, and coordination. Um, but, you know, most of the time we were the technicians. They could just call up and say, I need three shooters and two audio person and a gaffer. And we would, and they would trust that if they came through tag team productions, then they didn't have to ask any further questions. They knew that they were going to get the top quality uh, personnel. So that put us in a great position to just do everything. Um, and so I, I did have a very well-rounded technical background when I then first started shooting for Surfer Magazine, which was produced out of San Diego. And it was one, it was one of the first magazine shows on ESPN. This is back when ESPN was putting on Australian rules football and women and, you know, NCAA women's volleyball in order to stay on the air. Yeah, um, yeah I was back you know, a little bit, a couple of years ago. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, to answer your question, yes, I did. I, I came through the technical ranks. Um, you know, one of the, the most horrifying experiences you could ever have as a camera operator is to be your own editor. <laughs> You're like, what were you thinking? <laughs> Jesus, girl, it's called coverage. Why don't you get some, right? So I really made my shooting good because I would get into the editing suite and realize I didn't have shit to put together here, you know? So uh, I got really good at that. And that really put me in a good place to be a producer. Um, but it was my, you know, international travel experience that was really what got network um, attention because I, not only could I, did I know how to get a, a crew in and out of a country? You know, on Dude, You're Screwed, we were like, you know, uh, an elite, uh, <laughs> I'm not gonna use any any language that would get me in trouble with Captain Shepard, but um, I was gonna say we're an elite fighting force, but <laughs> we had to get in to a third world country, shoot an entire hour show out to another third world country and back to the United States in 10 days. Wow. <laughs> so, you know, and we were carrying, we had a hundred cases of gear. There were some airlines in Africa that we couldn't get our gear into the plane <laughs> because our gear was too big for their little doors, right? So it was, it was a logistical crazy, crazy schedule. We did eight countries on five continents in three months in season two. Wow. Yeah. And shot and all shooting a show, you know, our last day in every location was just brutal because we would have shot this, you know, the way the dude just screwed worked was the five guys, four of them would gang up on one of them and take them down in some sort of a Jason Bond, Jason Bourne kind of action sequence. I mean, Terry shot a net gun at John Hudson one time, you know, so, uh, uh, they, they chased Terry Shepard into a false elevator one time and the elevator drove away on a truck. Like that's how they would catch each other. Right. And they would, you know, put a bag over his head, zip tie his hands, and we would then drop him somewhere in the world by helicopter on the mountaintop and give him a hundred hours to get back to civilization. And then 
those guys would egress back to the, the, their dream tent. It was a tent that we designed specifically for shooting in. And it held satellite uplinks. It had weather station in there. Uh, it had, you know, GPS tracking. And it had also, we, they had, each guy wore a biometric uh, device on him. If he let his core temperature go too low in the cold or too high in the hot, he would disqualify. Oh, wow. And then they would smoke cigars and drink whiskey and laugh at him watching the satellite feed as he's out there starving and freezing to death, you know, in Iceland or Romania or Namibia or Tanzania, you name it. We, we went there. And then when the guy came in to, you know, to the hundred hour mark, got back to any kind of civilization, whatever they, they you know, there was never any, it was just, you touch something that's civilized, civilized with a human being next to it, you win in a hundred hours. And then they would all get together and laugh about it. Right. So that's what we did. Yeah. So that would take four days to do in the last day. Then I would have to interview all of them and get all of their thoughts for what we had just done. And it was like a 14 hour day. And that was while the rest of the crew was packing up the tent packed up into 10 cases. Right. So then, you know, and I, I was toast because I was the one doing the interviews. I would just, you know, completely brain dead by the end of the day. And then we're on an airplane flying, you know, trying to get between Namibia and Tanzania took us four countries, South Africa, up to, you know, I don't even remember the, the route. I was batty, but, you know, to get into some of these places, it's not a direct line, you know. So, um, but it was, it was some of the greatest times of my career uh, that that was really fun, but it was really the guys that made the show the best, right? Because they were, they, they had the discipline, they knew how to have fun. And as Terry said, nobody got pregnant, nobody went to jail, nobody's arms were broken. It was a good day. <laughs> they all had fun. So it was good. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, because I came from the troops, but I came down, you know, came up from actually shooting and, and recording the audio and editing a show to myself. That's what gave me the ability to rise up and be a producer and then eventually showrunner, which is the executive producer who is going to deliver the show. Awesome. If you can give someone just breaking into the industry, not come, maybe not coming out of college, maybe coming out of the military and they just say, you know what? I've been a shooter all these years. Now I want to go into, I want to go to Hollywood and work and get my feet wet and then move up through the ranks. What, what three pieces of tips would you give them? Well, number one, I would say, go talk to people. You don't happen. You know, it's a little bit tougher through COVID, but um, you know, the, the Hollywood is a place of relationships. So you've got, and you know, what sucks is you've got to be able to pay your dues, even if you've paid them already. I mean, I, I still work for free for friends just because someday it's going to come around that I need that. So you, you, you build that relationship, build relationships is probably the number one thing. Um, and I'll make this, you know, call to your, your um, audience. Uh, if, you know, you can give them my um, Gmail address and I'm happy to talk with anybody and, and, and see if I can help steer them in the right direction. I believe that, um, you know, I got here because somebody always believed in me. And so I, I always pay that forward. I'm also really big on mentoring and, you know, but it's on people to maintain relationships. You don't just send one email or go out to one lunch and go, how come I'm not a producer in Hollywood, you know? 
you got to make that connection. And, you know, it's, it's not, it's not always easy, but all of a sudden it can all of a sudden like doors just fly open. They're like, Oh shit, I better start running. You know? So. That's good. Then it's great advice. And I think in almost any career networking right now is the biggest thing to get you in. And it's sometimes it's not even what's written on your resume. It's, oh, who, no. it's who, you know, that gets you in the door. And it's always the body of work will show once you're in the door, if you have any of those skills that you put on there, but yeah, it, it's who, you know, as you walk in the door. And I think that advice is probably the best advice for any career or any journey you're on in life. Yeah. Well, I think, and, and if you, you know, if you're coming in cold, but just the mere fact that you have the gumption to go and talk to someone and maintain a relationship shows that you want to be there. Right. right? And that's what everybody's looking at. You know, at the end of the day, I'm going to be, uh, you know, I'm not going to say the foxhole. I didn't say the foxhole, Terry, but I'm, <laughs> I'm going to be in an airplane or I'm going to be in a set with you for 17, 18 hours a day for a week. And we're, we're both, both going to be at wit's end. I want to know that I can trust you and be with you and that you're still going to deliver when we're both completely bleary eyed. And that's, that's what relationships do. When I can lean on you is the best time when we're both in our, at our zero factor. So exactly. Exactly. So besides your email, what's a, a good way to find out what you're up to now or get in touch with you? Uh, my website, zuzabine.com. Uh, that keeps up all, all the, uh, the news that's fit to print. You know, right now I've got a, a documentary, uh, that is just now going on to the festival circuit called Proud in a Pandemic that we, you know, we shot during the pandemic. Um, so um, pretty proud of that. And um, yeah, that's that's the best place, Suzabine.com. Awesome. And that's going across the screen now. And that'll also be in the show notes along with your your contact information. Uh, Scotty, thanks for sharing. It's a lot of lot of a lot of a story to share in a 30 minute time block. And I, I enjoyed it. It was a good journey. And uh, I'm definitely going to have to look up the show now and, and binge watch it during my lunch hours and during oh, yeah. my downtimes. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. Don't start with the Namibia episode because, you know, you want to see, like, why that one was so gnarly. Okay. All right. <laughs> I'll definitely check it out and let you know what I feel about it. <laughs> it was the first time in my career where I realized I walked out at the time the company that I was making it for, High Noon, had... 200 cubicles and they had eight 16 shows going on all at once but i was separated from my crew who was in the cubicles at the other opposite side of the office and so i came out of my office and i shouted i need some c4 and some clown shoes stat oh, oh wow <laughs> I back in my office i went that just came out of my mouth huh <laughs> <laughs> Well, again, Sky, thank you for taking some of your time this evening and sharing your journey with the Misfit Nation. Absolutely, Rich. It's been a sheer pleasure. Thank you. Awesome. So thank you for checking us out tonight and uh, listening to Scotty's journey, her story. And uh, thanks for being a part of the Misfit Nation. Don't forget to visit our website, themisfitnation.com. Catch up on all our episodes. Also, to get some of that great Misfit Nation gear or check out our book that's on there. As always, be humble. Stay hungry and keep hustling because we are Fit Nation.